what's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is me. So this is a bonus episode, you guys. I am coming to you live and direct from my little studio closet to tell you about my new book that's coming out. So the last time I talked to you guys and kind of gave you my story, it was telling you about everything that I had worked on up and through my last novel, Beyond Bourbon Street, and, you know, putting together this podcast and having guests come on the show and all of that. So where did we leave off? Um, I was pregnant at the time that I recorded. By the time you heard it, my daughter was born. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, then you know that through all of season two and for a lot of this season so far, you've heard my daughter in the background. She's been with me. She's a pandemic baby, so she was home all the time. She just started daycare a week ago. Today is September 27th, and you're going to hear this next week, Tuesday on October 4th. And my book, my new book, comes out Wednesday, October 5th from LSE Press. So the name of the book is called Mardi Gras Indians. It's about the Mardi Gras Indians or Black Masking Indians of New Orleans. And it's my first traditionally published book. It's coming out from LSU Press. So how did an indie, self-publishing, imprint-owning, independent publishing company running writer, author like me get to this point? It came from my freelancing. So... I started freelancing before I left my television career in 2019. And my last day of television was August 2nd, 2019. And I was freelancing a little bit through that year. But once I left television, I was like, okay, I need to make this a thing because it can pay. But it wasn't really too much avail. I had a few pieces that year, but not many. But I was pitching constantly. And so It was in September of 2019 when I was in Chicago that I was in my room and I had my computer and I was like looking up places to pitch a couple of ideas that I had for essays. Both of them were about food. One was about red beans and rice. One was about gumbo. The gumbo essay eventually got picked up by Eater um, and ran in like early January of 2020. And then the Red Beans and Rice essay got picked up by The Bitter Southerner and ran in February of 2020. And after that essay ran, a few weeks later or so, I got a unsolicited email from the acquisitions editor of LSU Press. And she was basically like, hey, you know, I read your essay on Red Beans and Rice. We're working on a series of books from LSU about different parts of Louisiana culture. Would you be interested in writing for us, one? And then would you be interested in writing a book about red beans and rice? And so everything in me was like, hell yeah, I want to write for you. But I don't think there's a whole book on beans and rice. I think this essay is kind of done. And so we spoke and she told me that they had a list of topics that they were trying to cover in the series and before she sent me the list I said you know I'm kind of interested in writing about the Indians I'd always heard about them I knew about them a lot from the show Treme uh, which aired after Katrina in the early 2000s but I didn't really know what the culture was but I was intrigued and 
So she said, yeah, you know, that would be good. But the hard part about writing about the Indians is that you want to include pictures in the book and, you know, kind of getting those images could be difficult. And, you know, it has to be in color because what's, you know, a book about the Mardi Gras Indians, if you've seen their suits, if you don't have images in color. And so she said a tentative yes. I said a tentative yes. And then, as I always do with every major life decision, I called my mother. And so I was telling my mom about the email, telling her about the books that they were doing, telling her about all the ideas that they had. And she's like, well, send me the list. And so I sent her the list. And she's looking at the list and she's like, well, the only thing I know I can help you with on this list is the Indians. And so I said, all right, bet, we'll go with the Indians. And so to do that, to like really get the ball rolling on the book and everything, um, I had to write a proposal. And the book wasn't supposed to be super terribly long. They were thinking like 25,000 words. I think mine is like... 36, 40,000, somewhere in that range. And so I wrote the proposal of four chapters, how it covered the story from the history to the present, including as much as that I could find, sent it off. She was like, you know, we like the proposal, but we think that you have too much history. So we think we should you should combine two of the chapters that you have and then keep the other ones as you have them. And I was like, all right, great. We signed the contracts and then I was off to the races. Now, granted, this is all in 2020. And by this time, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. This is early in the pandemic. This is Corona classic, no vaccines. Everybody's in masks. Nobody's going outside. Schools are shut down. All of the things. Right. And so I'm like, okay, but how do I write a book about the Mardi Gras Indians without going to actually, you know, interview Mardi Gras Indians? So I was like, all right. I'm going to plan a trip. And so I started doing my research at home. I looked up all the books that I could find about the Indians. And then I looked at, you know, the different archives that were available in the city of New Orleans, specifically Ambassade Research Center at Tulane University, as well as the historic New Orleans collection down in the French Quarter. And I called my mom and said, all right, we're going to New Orleans in July. And she's like, wait, what? I'm like, we're going to New Orleans in July for me to do research and interviews. And by that time, she had called all my aunties, all my cousins and let them know I was going to be writing a book on the Indians. So everybody knew this was a thing, right? So in July, my mom flew to me in Florida and then me, my mom and my son got in my car and we drove eight hours from Jacksonville to New Orleans, where we spent about 10 days in the city and, you know, the weekend we caught up with family, that part. And then the first Monday I spent a full day in Amasad Research Center, watching old videos and film clips, digging through archives and historic records and, you know, uh, boxes and boxes from, that were donated by the Harrison family, Donald Harrison Sr. His family is a very well-known uh, Mardi Gras Indian. He passed, but his family's very much involved in the culture. And so they had donated all of these artifacts to the Amasad Research Center, and they hadn't even been cataloged yet. So they just brought them out to me on these, like, carts, and I was able to dig through the boxes with gloves on, of course, and, you know, get all of that history, make lots and lots of copies. I was there Past closing time, the lady in there was like, you know, uh, we got to go. And so she like made all these copies for me of things, sent me links to things that I could watch at home. And that was my first day. And then the next day I did the same thing in the historic New Orleans collection. Now, their archives weren't as deep. So I kind of went through a few things in there and I was like, I don't think I'm gonna find what I need in here. So 
I got the few things I could find. And then I went on my phone, opened up Amazon and ordered every book I could find about the Mardi Gras Indians and had them sent to my house. Biographies, autobiographies, uh, you know, recent stories that have come out from researchers and other folks who were interested and other little things like that. And then we went to the um, the museum, the Cabildo Museum. And there's another one right next to the Cabildo there on Charter Street um, in, in the quarter. And I went through the museum and I was looking at all the exhibits that they had about Mardi Gras and the Indians and also of Katrina because that was a big impact on the culture as well. And after I did that, I spent the next three days running around with my mom, my aunts, my cousins doing interviews interviewing as many people as I could. And that served as the basis for my research. So I came home with all of my interviews. When I got back, most of the books had arrived. And so I started reading through all of the books that I had ordered for my research. After I did that, I would log my interviews. And this is before I knew about like AI programs like Otter and Descript for any writers out there who have to do transcription. So I watched back all like nine of my interviews and type them out by hand. And while I will never do that again, what was helpful about it was that because I was typing out the interviews, you know, writing things down was a way for me to remember things, even from when I was a kid in college. It was a way for me to remember things. So I always liked, you know, writing out hand notes. Even to this day, I write out notes and things so that I can remember things. And so typing out those interviews helped me remember everything that was said and how to go and find the bits and pieces and parts that I would need um, to compile this book. But in the midst of that, I got pregnant. So I got the um, deal to do the book in like April of 2020. I went to New Orleans and did my research in July. And then in October of 2020, I found out I was pregnant. And I was still, you know, reading the books for my research as well as logging my interviews because it was a lot. And so I was like, all right, I'll start writing in January of 2021, which I did after the new year. I think I started writing January 8th. And so I started writing this book, but I had imposter syndrome. I like I didn't feel like I could do it because it felt like such a long time since I had written a book. Because mind you, Beyond Bourbon Street, I wrote in 2016. I did a lot of revision in 2019 and 2020, but like the basis of that book was written four years prior. And then, as I said in the previous bonus episode, I wrote three books in 2018 so that I wouldn't have to be writing in 2019. I could just focus on, you know, like self-promotion and marketing and growing myself as, I guess, an author brand, whatever that means. I'm rolling my eyes, but you can't see me. Um, So like I had these imposter syndrome when I was preparing to write Mardi Gras Indians like I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm going to be able to write this book. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And that was really heavily on my mind. Like, maybe I bit off more than I can chew. It's so much information. It's all these disparate strands of history and culture and colonialism and capitalism and slavery and then present day stuff. Like, I was really overwhelmed by the research. And as much as I loved learning, I was still like, you know, I have to put this together. Like, how am I going to do it? And one day, like October, November 2020, as I'm having all of these thoughts about how am I going to put this together? Maybe it was December. I don't remember. I remember waking up in the middle of the night 
And I just had like these words in my head. And I was like, all right, okay, noted. Words are in my head. And I'm not the kind of writer where I, when I have the first thought, I get up and immediately go write it down. I'm like, all right, if it comes back, I'll pay attention to it. But I was up and I couldn't let it go. So I was like, all right, fine. I know when the spirit is calling. I was like, okay, let me get up, go in the office, get this down and see what I see. So I got up out the bed, went down into my office. It's like two in the morning, maybe it was four. I don't know. It was early before the sun came up. And I get on the computer, open a blank document and start typing this paragraph that I have in my head. And I was like, okay, I feel good about that. I think the imposter syndrome's gone. I'm going to go back and go back to sleep. And got back upstairs, got back in the bed, laid down. And then I had more words. And I was like, fine, I'll get up. So I got up, went back downstairs, got back on the computer, and I wrote more words. And I'm like, okay, all right, I think we've got it. And I stopped at a point where like I needed a citation. And even though all my research books were like on the floor right beside me, I wasn't about to dig through to find the citation, to find the quote that I needed and do all of that at like two, three, four in the morning. I just, I didn't have the time for it. I was tired. I was pregnant. The pregnancy was hard. It was just, I'm going to lay down. And so I got up out of my chair and I looked up at this in the sky and In my house, like right when you come through the front door where my office is, we have like this big foyer and these really high ceilings. So I just looked up in the sky toward like the little chandelier we had up there. And I was like, all right, God, I get it. We got it. I will figure this out in the morning, but I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And I went upstairs and I got back in the bed. I went back to sleep. Yes, I get real defiant with the Lord sometimes, all the time. And like that was the beginning And so when I really sat down to write the book, it was January of 2021. I think my mom had come to visit me for Christmas. So she had my son to keep from bothering me. And she was staying to his birthday because his birthday was in January. And every day I would wake up and go in my office and write a little bit on this book about the Mardi Gras Indians. And I would have, oh, you should have saw me. I had like books open with my post-it notes and my scribbles inside the margins of the books on one part of me. I had like my old laptop that still had like a DVD player on it open on another side of me because one of my primary sources was a documentary that I was watching on it. And then I had the main um, desktop computer in front of me. So like stuff was just everywhere as I'm pulling from different sources, information and and quotes and dialogue and all of these things to put this book together. And so I started in January of 21 and I finished Mardi Gras Day of 2021, which was not the same because Mardi Gras that year was virtual because of the pandemic. And, you know, I finished that day, walked away from it. And then I came back maybe a week or two later to like read over what I had written, do some edits, and then I submitted my first draft. So did that. And when you publish with a um, a university press, you have to go what's called the peer review process. So it's their version of, I guess, big publishing's editing process. Not really sure because I'm not a big published author, um, but we'll find out because I'm still holding on to that dream. Um But yeah, you have to go through the peer review process. So I submitted the manuscript in like late March, early April of 2021. And then I think I got my edits back in 
July from the peer reviewer. And like any author, any artist, as Erica said, I'm sensitive about my shit, right? So like I got the edits back and I opened them and I opened the document with the full notes from the peer reviewer. I read them and I was like, oh, it's horrible. I don't know how I'm going to fix it. I can't do it. And I just immediately closed the document. Very, very melodramatic. And then after I got over myself, after about a week, I emailed Jenny and was like, hey, um, can I talk to the peer reviewer about what she said just so that I have more clarity around her comments or their comments because I didn't know who it was. And Jenny was like, well, you know, we don't really give out the information about our peer reviewers because they do it under condition of anonymity. And I was like, okay, but she's like, you know, we can have a conversation about the notes and how you can use it as a framework to do your revision process, right? And I was like, okay, bet. So we scheduled our talk. Uh, we went through the peer reviewers' comments um, page by page. Jenny gave me some feedback of how to structure my revision and make the book better, tighter, more concise, more easy to read. Because uh, there was a lot of history and a lot of names in the very beginning that was just like, as a peer reviewer said, unreadable and to help me, you know, get over myself and like do the work. And I was like, okay, bet. And so she was like, at the end of that call, she's like, so when do you think you'll have this back to us? And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know, because in 2021, I did what? I had a whole baby. My daughter was born June 11th, 2021. And so I was out of the hospital, yes, but I mean, I'm at home with a newborn. And while, you know, yes, all newborns do is, you know, eat, sleep, and poop, my daughter was a little different. She was just like up all the time. Like, she'd be good. She wasn't fussing, but she was just up. And so when, you know, a baby is up, they want your attention, especially a newborn, because they can't reach anything. They can't do anything for themselves. So, like, you have to play with them to keep them from, you know, being cranky and crying. Not so much they can play by themselves. So Jenny was like, all right, when are you going to have it back to us? And I was like, when do you need it back by? And she's like, well, if you want it published and, you know, spring 2022, we need to have it back by September. And I was like, all right. I can do September. I can do that. I think it might have been like July or August when we had this conversation. But I procrastinate. And because I just had a baby and I was doing my podcast mentorship thing that I mentioned in the last bonus episode. And and I was writing on another novel to which I'm still writing on a year later. And and. I was also still freelancing and trying to get back into the swing of freelancing so that I could make some money and, you know, pay Sally Mae and Verizon and DirecTV and all the other things. I was like, I have too much going on. I can't focus on doing this revision process with you right now. So I had to block out my mind of like, okay, I can get it. If I have to get it to her by September, I can do the revisions August 30th through September 7th. I write really fast especially when I know what I'm writing about. So I knew I could get the revisions done in a week. So I was like, all right, September 8th, I can get it to you. And I put it out of my mind until like the last week of August. And so once I did the revisions and submitted them, I didn't hear back for a few months. And I went through the peer review process once again. And I was asked to add a preface um, also to explain my methodology and 
I was asked to do something else. I can't remember. Oh, when you go through the second peer review process, you have to write a letter about how you answered the peer reviewer's initial questions in the revision. So I wrote that. I wrote the preface. They included the methodology and sent it back. And December of 2021, I was in Chicago for the holidays with my son and my daughter. And we were spending Christmas with my mom in Chicago. And I got the email from Jenny that says, hey, Nikisha, your book's going to be a real book. It just passed the second round of peer review. Um, it's not going to make spring 22, but it'll make fall 22. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? And then she gave me a whole laundry list of things that I needed to do, which was one, get permission slips from all of the um, people that I interviewed because I didn't do that the first time because I didn't know, uh, to get images for the interior of the book. And then once I got those images for the interior of the book, get permissions from all the archives and collections and photographers who own the rights to those pictures. Had to do that. And then it was a couple other things on the list. And it just seemed like it was never ending. And I was like looking at it. I was like, mm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't think I'm going to be able to do this book. You know, maybe it's just not going to come out because I can't. When I see I'm the kind of person like, yes, I do a lot of things, but when I see a long list of like bullet points of things for me to do, I get immediately like really overwhelmed. Like I can't do it. I don't have the time. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to do it. I don't have any help. And I just kind of spiral and freak out. And then, you know, after a few days, I come back and try to do it with the plan. In this situation, though, I freaked out and then kind of just ignored it. Like I had to do these things until Jenny was like, hey. We need you to send this in by this date. We need you to send this in by this date. And so I work really good with deadlines, though. So once I got the deadlines and the demand that I had to turn these things in, I just started going to work. I ended up sending my aunt and my cousin the permission slips and they ran around the city of New Orleans for me and got all the people they had connected me to to sign them. The ones that they couldn't get, I ended up being able to find on Facebook and Messenger and DMing and emailing them, all of that. Photographers, I hounded and got permissions that way and until all the until all the work was done. And since then, I've just kind of been sitting on it. And, and this is the first book project and process where I haven't been involved in every piece of it because I'm not self-publishing anymore. And so, you know, it's like I did my part. I turned in all the permissions. I wrote the book. I did the revisions. And now I was just waiting for it to come out. And yes, I did connect with the marketing team and sent a list uh, of folks to probably send it out for early review. So I got a review from Library Journal, which came out in September. I got a review from The Gabber, uh, which came out to d- yesterday. I think it came out yesterday, so September 26th, because today's the 27th. Um, and and other stuff like that. And I'm going to be doing a couple podcast interviews, not including this one. And yeah. I have a book coming out, Mardi Gras Indians, on October 5th, 2022. So I thought, if you don't mind, I'd read a little bit from that introduction that I wrote when I was freaked out and didn't think I would be able to write the book and just share that with you before, you know, I wrap up and end this episode and, you know, we get back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, Black and Published family. 
It's time for the reading. Mardi Gras Indians, by me, explores how sacred and secular expressions of carnival throughout the African diaspora came together in a gumbo-sized melting pot to birth one of the most unique traditions celebrating African culture, indigenous peoples, and Black Americans. From the San Gementos of the Congolese and the Calumets of the various tribes of the Lower Mississippi River Valley to one-on-one interviews with today's Black Masking Tribe members, this book highlights the spirit of resistance and rebellion upon which this culture was built. Here's the introduction. There is no one single definitive origin story that pinpoints the beginnings of what has been extrapolated over centuries into today's Black masking or Mardi Gras Indian culture. Instead, there is a multiplicity of stories that have more or less fidelity to a truth none of us were ever alive to know. The accuracy of these stories about what led African-American men and women to mask themselves in feathers, beads, and bells a few times a year in the name of history, lineage, and legacy depends upon how wide or narrow the scope and perspective of the historian, researcher, biographer, or journalist telling the tale. It also depends upon which Indian from which tribe you're speaking with and what version of the story they were told that starts many generations before the off-quoted 1886. What is undeniable, however, is that New Orleans Black masking Indian culture is as African as it is indigenous, as French as it is Spanish, and as American as are many other African-American art forms that combine the sacred and secular, the spiritual and profane, the rebellious and resilient, and the tragedy, struggle, and protest of a people with its triumph, rejoicing, and jubilee. In short, New Orleans Mardi Gras Indian culture is an exemplary illustration of the American motto, E pluribus unum, out of many, one. As Rachel Carrico and Essayama Archidioff noted in their chapter, Flying High, from Eric Waters and Kara Celestan's book, Freedom's Dance, Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs in New Orleans, the blending of African, European, and Native American styles and techniques of both music and dance has led to the evolution of new styles that have become indigenous to New Orleans. Some of the styles have become a signature of the expressive culture of the United States. Cultural expressions performed at Congo Square and on the streets of New Orleans gradually developed into Mardi Gras Indian traditions, New Orleans jazz, and rhythm and blues in the second line. This intertwining of indigenous, African, European, Catholic, and African traditional religions that became African-American culture as we know it today is a kismetic predestined fatalism, keeping America from the pure frontier of the wasp and thus producing the most celebrated American cultural feats, food, music, dancing, and language. These are unique cultural products that can all be seen in one of the country's greatest cities, New Orleans, and a secret subset of carnival culture, the Black Masking Indians. I'll stop there. So that's a little bit from Mardi Gras Indians. Hopefully the nature of the subject matter doesn't scare you away. It's not like a pure academic text because I'm not an academic. I am a journalist. So I brought my journalism background to this story and the skills that I honed in the newsroom and through freelancing to this story and 
infused it with my love of language and words as an author and a novelist to create this work that I'm really, really proud of um, and really, really grateful for and really, really thankful. Um, If you remember my journey from the last bonus episode, then you know it's been a hard fight to get to this moment. Um, But yeah, we're here and the book is coming out tomorrow and I would love your support. You could just share this episode with someone, uh, get a copy of the book. I'll be in Louisiana on at the end of October for the Louisiana State Book Festival. So if you're in the area, I would love to see you. I would love to meet you. Um, and I'd love to to have your support on this own little black and published journey of mine. So I'm going to stop there because I feel weird talking in a studio by myself and we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming uh, next week. So if you want to keep up with me about what I've got going on with Mardi Gras Indians and all the other things that I'm working on, because I did mention briefly that I was writing on another novel, still working on it. Um, Follow me on the socials. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise on both Instagram and Twitter. So that's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, the regular version, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and published. I don't have a bonus clip for you this week for you to check out, but still holler at me in the comments. I'm going to be posting some things about the book, the cover, uh, links, other things like that. Um, But next week, our guest will be Maisie Card, author of the novel, These Ghosts Are Family. I wanted it to be representative of my real life efforts to kind of understand family and not not so much like the fi- the way it's depicted in fiction. I wanted wanted there to be confusion and revision constantly. So um, yeah, I think the arrangement is messy because that's how we learn. We actually learn about our family history, especially if you're black in, in the Western world. You know, you have to kind of put put together like puzzle pieces. That's next week on Black and Published. I'll talk to you then. Peace. Bye.